We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Willer's getting booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard. Here's Scott Thompson. Wait, 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 wait. Where are you going? Where's the, where, where's the little uh, witty repartee, the Valentine's Day, the, you know, uh, sending the roses, chocolate kisses, and all that sort of stuff. Where's all that? Wait, 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 wait. He's shy. Come here. Give me a hug. No. Nothing to do with that, that's for sure. All right, good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson, Hamilton today, deviating from uh, the Rolling Stone list. Because, you know, and I shouldn't say this too loud, because I did go out earlier and, you know, for the wife and stuff. So uh, that being said, doing what I did this morning regarding Valentine's Day, like I'm totally oblivious to it after that. Once I start following the show, it's like, oh, it's the one-year anniversary of the convoy. It's like, no, no, it's Valentine's Day too. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, right, 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 right. So let's, oh, and in the last minute that, you know, there's the idea, oh, well, we got to get the Sam uh, Sam Cook Cupid on. We got to get the spinners doing the same version or a similar version and whoever else we can dig up. Uh, so there you go. I mean, um, uh, don't forget. So this is the gentle reminder, guys. Do not forget. It's uh, Halloween. Oh, I'm sorry. It's Valentine's Day today. So uh, get out and uh, do what you have to do. I know. Let's not get into that. Let's just enjoy the festivities. It's been a hard enough couple of years. Let's just spread the love. Uh, that being said, I was watching a thing uh, on the news because that's really all I do, and 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 they were talking about the prices of of roses and flowers and, and you know going up, going up, going up. To which they, you know the nice rose man said, "Well, everything's going up." So yeah, I guess so. so- so, you know, again, ladies, I'm not complaining. I'm not, I'm not, you know what, I'll just shut up right now. But yeah, don't forget your wallet, boys. Don't forget the wallet. And ladies, don't forget this goes two ways, doesn't it? Doesn't Valentine's Day go two ways? Doesn't it, you know, reciprocate back and forth? I oh, know, see, I'm getting back into the ugly territory again. If your name is Scott Thompson, don't forget <laughs> your shovel. <laughs> keep digging scott keep yeah, digging that's, that's a little broom uh all right um you know what uh and here's my last uh, bit of advice as an old guy sex is free wow yeah uh, see now we've opened up another can of worms haven't we all right let's move on and uh let's talk about the news of the day hey it's the one year anniversary of the freedom convoy no it's not it's the one year anniversary of the uh, emergencies act being called Boy, you know, don't ever think that that Justin Trudeau's not a ladies' man on Valentine's Day when the rest of us are just trying to get flowers and and chocolate and maybe a kiss on the cheek. This guy's calling the Emergencies Act. What do you think that gets you? All right. And it's a one-year anniversary of him doing that. Nobody's talking about it. You know why? We're too busy chasing balloons with a pea shooter. And trying to take credit for who shot them down. All right, enough of that. Uh, and again, um, uh, the one-year anniversary of the convoy, uh, just like the three weeks that we're in the middle of now, and the Emergency Act has come and gone um, without any hoopla whatsoever. And many of those that are uh, on the opposite side, and you know, I'm in the middle. I don't care about any of this crap. I don't care about the extreme right or the extreme left in the anymore. I, I'm in the middle, man. Anybody want to join me? Uh, anyway, uh, one year ago today was the anniversary and 
uh, of the emergency act being called. And of course, nothing really comes out of this. We thought we were going to see this, that, or the other. And really, it was just a good excuse for the Ottawa police to come up with a plan, which is something they should have had in the first place. But I digress. Um, but yeah, I mean, as everybody says, it's pretty unorganized. It's pretty this. Uh, it's pretty on this. It's pretty on that. It's, it's the deplorables. It's, um, it's not really, uh, one common voice. And, and the only thing that was more un- unorganized in the Freedom Convoy was, of course, the Prime Minister's office, uh, Ottawa City Hall, the Police Services Board, and the Ottawa Police Service. They were the only ones that were more unorganized uh, than the actual uh, convoy leaders themselves. All right, let's move on. Hazel McCallion uh, being laid to rest, a formal funeral for her today. 38 years as mayor, 102 years of age. She would have been today on Valentine's Day. How sweet is that? All right. Uh, and speaking of mayors, uh, as we talked about yesterday, uh, and remember uh, last Friday, we were, ah, did you hear about John Tory? Oh, my God. And um, then, of course, the, the budget stuff, which is in the midst of, um, yeah, it's a very tenuous spot, uh, trying to get it over the finish line. So he's decided to stay on till then. And then I'm hearing, like, and that could be delayed, and that could be whatever, and that could be whatever. And then at the end of all of this, we'll know whatever happened to, uh, and John Tory will still be there. That is my prediction. I predict that he will, A, never leave, or B, if he does, he'll circle back around for re-election and uh, continue um, uh, where he left off because there's plenty of uh, chatter out there in regard to uh, him, people not wanting him to go. They want him to stay. Simple as that. Uh, one, I think, uh, article had, uh, you know, he's, he's uh, lost his halo, but he's still a great mayor. So anyway, um, we'll see what happens with that. But I predict he ain't going anywhere. That is just my guess. Um, but, you know, um, we'll see what happens as time goes by. And uh, time, I think, is in this case will heal all wounds because it seems uh, personally most of them have moved on from the situation. It's just the public backlash at this point that we're dealing with all right uh all of that coming up over the course of the show uh what are we going to oh paul delaney up first going to talk to him about the russian soyuz capsule remember it was damaged and they were wondering whether they could send it back up or down or whatever well and again you know thinking what's happening with the russian invasion of ukraine and that all heightening where does that leave that uh, they're still up there, so we'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, Hamilton's uh, 100, Hamilton 100, of course, trying to get the uh, uh, Commonwealth Games here in Hamilton. Uh, has uh, Looks like it's coming to a, a, a screeching halt. We'll talk about that with P.J. Marcani coming up a little later on. Also, Valentine's Day, the impact, uh, even in retailer, uh, retail, are we coming back around? We'll talk to Bruce Winter about that a little later on. It is 3.15, a full newscast coming up at the bottom of the hour with Dave Woodard. We've got Got some traffic and weather on the way and a sneak peek with now uh, with Dave. Now, what are you looking at, Dave? You might remember we talked to Paul Delaney about this a while ago. Uh, there was a Russian Soyuz crew capsule that was damaged, uh, docked at the International Space Station. Now there's been some further complications with that. To talk more and explain it all, Paul Delaney, professor of astronomy, York University with us now. Paul, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Always good to be with you, Scott. So I remember we talked about this a while ago, and something, uh, a mini-meteor or micro-meteoroid or whatever, hit this and, and put a small hole. Coolant was leaking. What happened after that? Well, that is the, the current theory, but given the fact that the Progress resupply capsule has just sprung a leak in more or less the same place, everybody is uh, looking back and going, 
hmm, is that really what has happened? The chances of, of two uh, micrometeorites striking two independent vessels in exactly the same area within yeah. about sort of eight weeks of each other, you got to think it's time to buy a lottery ticket. So uh, it's not certain what is happening at this point. Certainly the MS-22, that's the Soyuz capsule that was designed to bring three astronauts, cosmonauts back to Earth, has been deemed un- um I was about to say roadworthy, but unworthy to bring back astronauts mm-hmm. from low Earth orbit. And so Russia was planning to send up a replacement capsule uh, basically sometime this month. They've now put that on hold, given what has just happened with the progress resupply module. Now, the three astronauts, two, two uh, cosmonauts, one astronaut, are planning to stay on board the International Space Station now through to September. They'll, uh, they've transitioned into a long-duration mission. So it's really not a big issue that the MS-23, the replacement Soyuz capsule is not coming up now until March. Russia basically wants to sit back and have a much closer look at the radiator system and see whether or not there is something that they need to better understand with respect to their hardware. So at the moment, their replacement capsule is on hold and the three astronauts, cosmonauts, are going to be on board basically for a year by the time they come back to Earth in September. Ooh, that's a long wait. So, um, so again, yeah. l- let me, and hopefully I'm, I'm following this. So there's, there's the, uh, the one ship that's docked at the International Space Station. There's one that's still on the ground, and they both have the same issue. Is that accurate? Uh, no. No, sorry, I've, I've obviously not explained it well. The MS-22 is the Soyuz capsule that is docked, and it developed a leak in the radiator coolant system, basically discharged all of its coolant into right. space. That capsule has been deemed unspaceworthy. The replacement capsule, the MS-23, is still on the ground, and they were going to bring it up in February, but they have held off because one of the progress resupply capsules that is docked at the International Space Station Ah, has just sprung a coolant leak in basically exactly the same area as Mm. its Soyuz counterpart. Now, the progress is an uncrewed vehicle, so there's there's no issue about it as far as it being unspaceworthy. When it undocks from the International Space Station, it burns up anyway, so Mm -hmm. it's not an issue. But what is a concern is... Gosh, it's developed exactly the same problem as the docked Soyuz. So we've now got two vehicles, both docked at the International Space Station. Both have sprung coolant leaks in the same area within two months of each other. The chances of that happening from micrometeorite impacts, or anything else for that matter, is incomprehensibly small. So Russia is sitting back now and saying, before we launch up our replacement Soyuz for the astronauts, we want to better understand what the heck is going on with our radiators. So are they concerned that the ones still on the launch pad could have or develop similar issues? That's basically the bottom line to it, yes. They don't believe that has happened, but you've got to err on the side of being prudent. I mean, if you launched mm. up another Soyuz capsule, it docks, and it too is, is considered unspaceworthy after being at the International Space Station for a few months. You know, it just plunges everybody into second guessing about, you know, what, what's the quality of their hardware. So, yeah, they've, they've erred on the side of we're going to ground the MS-23, the Soyuz that is on the ground, uh, and until we better understand what is happening in orbit. And I, I care to bet that they're going to go over 
the the grounded vehicle uh, just uh, you know an extra degree of caution inspect it thoroughly and see whether or not there is something they need to know about their hardware I remember way back when, when we were talking about whether they were going to take the one at the International Space Station and bring it down, but obviously they they, they ruled against that. So let me ask you this, Paul, because you certainly have watched this for an awfully long time. If you're a, a cosmonaut, how comfortable are you now, or are you more comfortable knowing, well, they're going to go over it again before they, they send it up? You'd have to, or you'd have to say the latter. I mean, if I was yeah. a cosmonaut, nobody's going to say this. They would certainly want every precaution to be taken. I mean, it's your vehicle home. It's your, yeah. your lifeboat. You know, it's got to function a hundred percent during reentry. The absolute last thing you want is, you know, the radiator fluid, like in your vehicle, deciding mm. it's not going to dissipate heat, and all of a sudden your engine in a car blows up, so to speak. Uh, the capsule has got to be able to function during reentry, where you're talking about. 2,000 degrees Celsius temperatures surrounding you, you want your radiator to work. So, yeah, as a cosmonaut, absolutely. Leave it on the ground, go over it with a fine-tooth comb, and let's have a closer look at both the vehicles now that are on the International Space Station and see if we can come to a consensus about what has happened. Maybe it is just fortuitously bad luck, but I would want to be convinced categorically that that's the case before I step back into a Soyuz capsule. That being said, if they had to come down, whether it's the US, SpaceX, whatever, they've got a way back down. They do, uh, and of course we've got a Dragon capsule that is docked there which could host or hold more astronauts if the need arises. And they've, they've worked through contingency plans here. Mm-hmm. The current one is if they really did have to use the MS-22, the one that is docked that has lost its radiator fluid, they would literally put two astronauts or two cosmonauts in there, transfer an extra astronaut over to uh, the SpaceX Dragon. There is a sense that the, radio, the, the, the capsule could cope with two people on board rather than three during oh. reentry. I, I don't know whether or not I'm I'm happy with that type of analysis. Uh, yeah. But, you know, if, if if you've got an international space station that has to be abandoned, and let's face it, we've never had to do that. But if right. you had to abandon it, I guess you'd run the risk, wouldn't you? Paul Delaney with us, Professor of Astronomy, York University, just life at the International Space Station. Uh, Paul, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Take care, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, a Hamilton group's effort to host the Commonwealth Games in 2030 has come to a screeching halt. Hamilton 100's bid is no longer Canada's preferred candidate to host the international event, Commonwealth Sport Canada said in an email to organizers on Monday. To talk more about all of this, PJ Marcanti with us, CEO of Carmen's Group, president of the Hamilton Urban Precinct Entertainment Group, and here now. PJ, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Doing well. Thank you, Scott. So, you know, when this all came about way back when, many looked at this and thought, wow, this is a great fit. This is a great idea. What happened? Where where did it go south? So we found out yesterday that, unfortunately, the province wasn't able to get back to Commonwealth Sport Canada with regards to some of their requirements for a submission at the end of the month. And so we were informed yesterday that the Hamilton bid will no longer be the Commonwealth Sport Canada and Canadian preferred bid, uh, preferred bid city. So, you know, it was certainly disappointing to learn that news, but, you know, we're the bid team, Lou Fraporti, Greg Maychak, Cecilia Carter-Smith, Mark Wu, 
we're eternal optimists and, and, and we're obviously looking at all of the good that came out of our effort over the past many years. Uh, we would have loved to have hosted 2030 uh, in Hamilton, but unfortunately it wasn't in the cards. And, and so we're going to pivot from here, but we're going to take with us the great things that we did and the great things that we learned from this exercise and move forward. And we remember that um, initially it was 2030 because that's the 100th anniversary uh, of the games here. And then it was 2026 and, and, and COVID, what, what have you. So what didn't Ontario do? What, what, what happened here? Can you explain? Sure. So, so Commonwealth Sport Canada had a specific list of requirements that they needed the province to provide, um, you know, modest funding for an international bid and other other small technical items. And they presented a deadline of February the thirteenth that they required this information by, and unfortunately, that deadline had lapsed without uh, without communication from from the province. Now, we had been engaging with them over the course of the past many months. So, so they've been at the table, many of the ministry staff um, within the Ministry of Sport, Culture, Tourism. And, and so we've been going back and forth on preparing uh, a bid in alignment with the feds, with the province, with uh, the many municipalities and First Nations that would be a part of this, this effort. And uh, the last few items that the province or that Commonwealth Sport Canada needed from uh, from the the province, unfortunately, didn't come through, and so that's when uh, CSC decided to share the news with us. And they're going to be looking at other options and and um, areas that are that are looking at the 2030 games, because by the end of February, uh, Commonwealth Sport Canada has to present to the federation the expression of interest uh, for, you know, for the country. And so there was a deadline imposed by Commonwealth Games Federation that unfortunately we were not able to meet. So is this done and over with then, PJ? Is this it? Is it final? So our bid team is unfortunately going to cease operations, you know, until such time that circumstances warrant and the province reconsiders, you know, we'll, you know, we'll, you know, be open-minded to reviving the efforts. But as of today, our bid operations, uh, you know, will stop. We've shared communications with many engaged community stakeholders about this decision, and and you know, and we we're we're proud of what we've achieved. We're grateful for this pursuit. You know, the mm. fact that we were a community-led bid that had no government funding, and we were selected as Canada's bid city for 2030, and then were requested by the CGF to host 2026 is pretty tremendous. And you know, we had a lot of great social impact legacies and creative innovations in our community bid that was proposed and all of these sports organizations educational institutions the not-for-profit and community organizations the private sector partners the, the various municipalities across southern ontario that were at the table uh, should all you know have their heads held high because what we did was impressive and the fact that we were able to have such a diverse group at the table collaborating about you know lifting up this region is truly spectacular so were any reasons given pj for ontario not following through with this is this a money issue they decided not to they didn't want to meet the conditions was there any reasoning any communication there as to why they let this lapse 
So, so there, there, you know, unfortunately, uh, there, there was no, no formal, formal reasoning. But we'll obviously, over the course of the next uh, few days and weeks, uh, do our best to engage with uh, with ministry staff um, and 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 politicians. But you know, I know that, and you know, there's a lot going on in the world of sports uh, with with FIFA and post pandemic. So, so you know, we certainly understand that um, you know that there's you know conflicting priorities uh, yeah. at the table politically but we're you know we, we were confident that our bid was compelling it would have been a 1.2 billion dollar boost to regional GDP it would have created 400 million dollars worth of games contracts for local businesses it would have created 300 million dollars in new tax revenue for the governments and created 16,000 new jobs so you know we stand behind the fact that there was a high ROI for all stakeholders, uh, you know, at the table, this would have been a, a two or three to one ROI for the Ontario government's investment. And uh, and so we're still hopeful that, you know, that good will come out of this effort. You know, we wish the best to any other municipality or, or region across the country or beyond that are exploring this. And, and we remain open minded to supporting and helping them in any way that we can. We learned a lot through this process. And we wish nothing but the best for Commonwealth Sport Canada and the CGF. You know, we're fans of their, their you know, what they stand for and in, in delivering, you know, sport with a social impact um, and, and to focus on legacies and community after the games. And so, you know, we wish nothing but the best and we're nothing but grateful for this pursuit. Do we know who the preferred candidate is? Uh, we do not, and so so mm. Commonwealth Sport Canada hasn't shared uh, mm. hasn't shared uh, you know obviously things that uh, or conversations that they're having, and so we're not we're not sure uh, you know what the status is, uh, but but we wish them and whomever else uh, the best of luck, and mm. and and we remain we remain at arms that that should the province reconsider, uh, should circumstances change, you know we've put hundreds of thousands of hours you know amongst thousands of volunteers into this bid effort without requesting one dollar from any level of government so so we're ready to mobilize if if asked but um but for now yeah the the uh the bid operations will stop um lrt on the horizon you talked about fifa obviously a pandemic do you think it's just a great idea planets not correctly aligned and that's you know that's very very uh, you know possible that it, it was just we we got caught in the crossfire of yeah. a lot of other priorities and 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 initiatives. But I can I can share that there was a lot of uh, broad support for our bid efforts. There were eight mayors, eight regional mayors, including Mayor Horvath and two First Nations leaders, Chief Laform and Chief Hill, that that sent a, a joint letter to the premier supporting the, this bid effort. There were. There was a letter from, I think it was a dozen uh, local chambers of commerce supporting this bid effort. There was a letter sent to the premier from 16 Ontario sports organizations. So there was a lot of support uh, for this from a broad cross-section of regional stakeholders. And so, you know, we stand behind the fact that, you know, that we were able to come together, uh, you know, in common goods and, and, and try to, you know, do great things to lift up the community, uh, especially, you know, leaving legacies for the most marginalized in this community. And so, so we believe that, you know, there was a lot of great innovations presented in our bid. It would have been the first time that lacrosse would be a medaled event 
in mm. Commonwealth sport history and would have that would have taken place on First Nations uh, grounds at the Six Nations of the Grand River. So, you know, we're proud of the relationships that we formed. And we believe that these relationships, uh, you know, with many of these stakeholders can maintain and be a, mm. a springboard for a springboard for more collaboration to do great things in the community. We, you know, I think that there's there was great alignments amongst all the organizations uh, and we're going to continue to build on that and continue to build the dream that is Hamilton. You know, we're not going to yeah. stop uh, here. Mm. We're going to keep keep moving forward. Well, PJ, you're certainly one of the city's biggest cheerleaders, and we thank you for the effort put forward. What you and your family have done over the years, my goodness, uh, has certainly helped the city move forward. This would have been another one, but uh, maybe next time or never say never. We You never know. Thanks so much, PJ, and good luck. No, thanks so much, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We certainly know uh, inflation and affordability, all of that stuff, uh, eating eating out, going out, doing whatever, or just even be able to uh, put food on the table and gas in the car has been a challenge. What does that mean around Valentine's Day? Do we pull back the reins uh, on Valentine's Day, uh, similar to Christmas, what have you? Let's bring in Bruce Winder, retail analyst and author, retail before, during, and after COVID, and with us now. Bruce, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on the program. So I'm watching a florist on TV on the news uh, the other day, and uh, they're asking about prices of flowers, and they say, yep, 20%. Everything's up 20%. Doesn't matter, gas, groceries, flowers, Valentine's Day, it's 20%. So just assume the same thing here? Well, you know what? I guess it is. I mean, you look at around, you know, you look around, there's, I think I think the industry's uh, feeling the same thing as other parts. I mean, you look at the cost of roses and the cost of chocolate and everything's went up, you know, and uh, some of this, you know, I have to say, I don't have any specifics, but some of this is real and some of it is businesses just trying to sort of take advantage of the inflation wave to raise prices and Hmm. have their margins. Not everyone, but there's some of them out there who are doing it. So, but it is what it is. And as a consumer, you're faced with this across the board, like you said, whether it's food or gas or what have you. It's interesting, Bruce, because you're the, it's the first time I've heard wind of this, but it, it doesn't seem surprising when you think about it. Inflation wave. Elaborate on that a bit more. Well, I mean, you know what? You know, and it all started after the pandemic, right? But you know what? There was input price increases. A lot of it started with container rates, you know, when you move product around the world. And then there was issues around factories and there wasn't enough workers and we're still going through that. And then there's input costs from a raw material standpoint, you know, uh, and now interest rates have went up. So, you know, if you're if you're a business owner, there are some legitimate increases here that you've had to mm. either absorb or pass on. But you know what? There's probably also a few people who are taking advantage of it. But there are some real cost increases. But this is going to change consumption. You know, this isn't like up 2%. These are up 10 20%, 30%. This is going to change the way people consume goods and services. Interesting you should say that. Uh, obviously, when you buy things on a weekly basis or, or every couple of weeks or, or, or twice a week or what have you, that's one thing. Then there's holidays like Christmas and or Valentine's Day, what have you. Do they feel the effect or do people just, it's once a year, I do it? 
No, I think it's going to feel the effect. I mean, I guess you could argue that if you're a new couple, you know, you still might spend a little more because you're in that honeymoon stage. But if you're not, you know what? You're going to work together and say, you know what? We need this money. How can we do things a little cheaper? Maybe we can eat at home or something like that. Maybe I don't have to get you the the biggest boxes of chocolates. I can get you a smaller box, what have you. You know, you can really go over the top with this with Valentine's Day. And I think people are going to be a little like on like Christmas, the holiday, and sort of find ways to cut back. I wonder if you spend less on Valentine's Day if it's on a Tuesday as opposed to a Saturday. Yeah, it's a great question. I would think the answer is yes, because it's just like Halloween. You know, when Halloween's on a Saturday, people spend more. Yeah, good point. All right, Bed Bath & Beyond. uh, A lot of people like this store. Uh, 54, it's Canadian locations closing down. What's the story there? Yeah, real sad story. I mean, this retailer only was here in Canada since about 2007 or 2008. They were once a force to be reckoned with, but a lot of things sort of uh, became headwinds for them. The whole big box way of doing things, retail, has sort of faded away. Um, They also, you know, I don't think they really created a new strategy that changed with the times. You know, you had a lot of other retailers get real serious about their categories, the home decor categories, folks like Walmart and Amazon and even Canadian Tire, and they really didn't change. And now the U.S. parent, which is probably in worse shape than the Canadian parent, you know, they just got a billion-dollar line of credit or set up, but they're, they're, they've jettisoned the Canadian operation. So it's a, it's just one of the, it's a typical story of a retailer that was once mighty that didn't change with the times, didn't keep themselves lean and nimble, and here they are on the side now. Boy, that really is a big deal now. Like at one time, it was well, I go to this store because I know exactly what I'm going to get. Now it seems if you don't change, that you're you're done with the times. I remember walking into a Chapters and thinking, what are they selling here? I thought it was all books. Exactly. And and retailers have to adapt. The other thing is, you know, did they really embrace the online portion as much? I mean, certainly they had a good ride through the pandemic when uh, everyone wanted home decor because they were at home. But as soon as that broke, then, you know what, the true colors came out and they just couldn't survive. Bruce Winder with us, retail analyst and author, retail before, during and after COVID-19, how the crunch is affecting Valentine's Day. Bruce, thanks so much for the time and uh, be well. Yeah, you too. Take care. Mississauga is a better city, Ontario is a better province, and Canada is a better country because of the amazing life of Hazel McKellen. There you have it, uh, Premier Doug Ford, uh, one of the many dignitaries, including the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, at the uh, the funeral for former Mayor of Mississauga, Hurricane Hazel McCallion. 38 years she served as mayor, and uh, the funeral celebrations uh, on what would have been her 102nd birthday, uh, which is incredible. And, um, boy, right up until, like, the last week she was with us, uh, still in the public eye and, and still trying to make a difference. Uh, joining us now to talk more about all of this, Colin DeMello is with us, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News and with us now. Colin, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. So, uh, obviously, Colin, um, you know, Hazel McCallion, hence the name Hurricane, a feisty lady, uh, getting on the side of, of causes that she believed in and such. But, boy, it was hard to find uh, anybody who uh, had anything other than praise for, for Hazel in the years and years of service that she gave. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people have to understand the impact of Hazel McCallion, and not just on local politics, but, you know, munis- but federal and provincial politics as well. I mean, this was, as the premier said today, she was a force to be reckoned with. And she said, he said, 
you know, if you didn't kind of adhere to that force or listen to her, she would certainly make you feel that, right? She would definitely make you pay for it for not really adhering to that force of nature and bending to her will. Um, you know, the premier talked a lot about the advice that he received from Hazel McCallion. In in um, the first part of his mandate, he actually offered Hazel McCallion a six-figure salary to be an official advisor to the premier. The mayor said, sure, I'll, I'll be an advisor, but I don't really need to get paid for it. And one of the Hmm. anecdotes told today at the funeral was the reason she didn't want to get paid for it was because in case she had to criticize the government, she didn't want to be on the government's dime. (laughs) Nonetheless, Hmm. uh, Premier Ford said he and Hazel McCallion would meet every Saturday morning for breakfast and the two of them would, you know, talk about a whole bunch of political issues of the day. And he really would rely on that advice to help guide him through because the, the premier is somewhat of a, polit- a political neophyte, right? He was mm-hmm. there at Toronto City Council, but hasn't really been a provincial player. And he really relied on her to give her a lot of give him a lot of guiding advice. And even though she retired from being mayor, I mean, she was always actively involved in something. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, she was also on the Greenbelt Council that the, the premier had had appointed her to. She was always active in politics. I mean, you know, w- one of the last interactions I had with her was uh, when the premier was being inaugurated or sworn in again for the second time after the election. And, you know, I asked her, well, what do you think the premier should be watching about? And she said, well, you know, I think the economy is going to be number one. It's going to be a big topic. And she said he really needs to watch out for that. She talked a lot about uh, building affordable housing. I mean, this woman in her old age, was definitely sharp as a whip. And and mm. even the prime minister today had talked about the fact that when he saw her just a few weeks ago, uh, you know, she was talking about the international stage and what Canada needed to do to make itself, you know, a good economic player on that world stage. And the prime minister had re- remarked about how, you know, how sharp, how sharp-witted she was, just how mentally, um, you know, with it she was, and how she was able to provide that political advice and guidance right up until her final moments. Obviously, Colin, you've been doing this for a while. You've met lots of them. What was your take of her? I mean, was she any different than the others? Uh, what was your personal thought on 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 just her character and what she was like to to interview and ask questions to? Oh, the Hazel McCallion that you would see on TV. You know, the the really feisty, brash type of politician was exactly the person you would see behind the scenes. Like she Mm. really never forgot a lot of people. Uh, One day I remember, uh, you know, there was uh, uh, just south of University Avenue, south of Queens Park on University Avenue, uh, there was a a taxi cab. I looked inside and there's Hazel sitting in the back, you know, (laughs) presumably to come up to Queens Park to say hello to the premier. And I kind of poked my head and said, oh, hi, Mayor uh, Hazel McCallion. And she was like right away, like, hey, I'm going up to go talk to the premier and, you know, go go give him a piece of my mind. I mean, she really was (laughs) um, reflective of the person you saw in front of the scenes. And she really didn't hold her criticism back for anybody. I'll I'll let you in on a little private conversation we had. So one time we were talking in um, November. That was the last time I saw her. And this was an event related to um, raising money for the the hospital in, in Mississauga, one of the hospitals in Mississauga. And I happened to mention to her, I said, hey, your your son, he's running for council. And she said to me, yeah, but he doesn't live in the ward. Won't be good for him. (laughs) He does not hold her criticism back for anybody. Uh, and, And that's just the type of person she was. She was always upfront, to the point, gave you 
you know, the advice that was on her mind and, and never really held back. And she will always be remembered for being that lifelong champion and advocate of Mississauga, certainly one of the greats, as as uh, Bonnie Crombie, her successor, put it, the matriarch of Mississauga. Very much put Mississauga on the map. I mean, they, they went through a, a period of tremendous growth under her. Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of people who live in Mississauga, you know, uh, drive through Mississauga would maybe recognize the fact that Mississauga wouldn't look and feel the way it is today if it wasn't for Hazel McCallion, right? When yeah. she took over as the mayor, it really was a small bedroom, sleepy community of, of Toronto, mm-hmm. a suburb in the truest sense. But she took over, found every piece of developable land and really turned it into something and, you know, tried to create a, a, a city center that was an attraction and a magnet for all of the families who lived there and, and never forgot uh, to, you know, put Mississauga at the forefront, whether she was talking to prime ministers, premiers, it was always about what was best for Mississauga and how Mississauga could could really thrive. And, and, and you know, I think that's one of the reasons why Mississauga is, um, you, you know, one of the largest cities in Canada and certainly one of the largest cities, um, the sixth largest city actually in Canada, third largest in Ontario. And, you know, it's still continuing to grow. All right, only got a few seconds left, Colin, and I, and I know you're the Queen's Park Bureau Chief, but I got to ask you the story regarding the Mayor of Toronto, uh, John Tory, and what's been happening. How is that permeating Queen's Park? What's the buzz? Oh, the buzz is who is Doug Ford's pick? for the next mayor of Toronto. And, and that mm. really is uh, the big talk here. The conservative apparatus from, you know, political organizers to fundraisers and pollsters have all started lining up behind key members to run to replace John Tory. Why? Because there could be a huge amount of benefit to Premier Doug Ford in the next election if his agenda is seen through at Toronto City Council in terms of building things, in terms of building affordable housing. There is a lot at stake here for Premier Doug Ford, and he's got a horse in this race. Um, We're hearing that he's backing one particular candidate, although not making it well known, but there's definitely a lot of political implications for Premier Doug Ford, and he or his conservative apparatus is definitely involved in some way or another in this uh, Toronto municipal race. Lots of ripples there. Colin DeMello with us, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News, talking about the funeral for uh, former mayor of Mississauga, Hazel McCallion. Colin, thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Lots going on in politics, whether it's health care and what's going on with the premiers and the feds uh, as well. uh, The funeral, official funeral today for Hazer McCallion, uh, John Tory, the mayor thing in Toronto. What's going on with that? And all as well, uh, the anniversary of the uh, invoking of the Emergencies Act all today on Valentine's Day. Let's bring in Peter Grant, professor of political science, McMaster University is with us now peter thanks for the time i hope you're well i am thanks i hope you are too uh so far so good peter your thoughts just on uh i've been watching little excerpts of the funeral of hazel mccallion and uh, boy it was hard uh, pressed to find anybody who didn't say something positive about her sir her service and her just uh her tenacity and and uh and just the way she defended her city is is hazel mccallion a different type of politician than what we see today yeah, I mean, she was certainly uh, a politician of an era, uh, you know, the, someone who became a mayor of a municipality in the outskirts of Toronto at, at a time when you could almost do no wrong. But yeah, yeah certainly, uh, you know, she filled that role, I think, to be a, a, a woman politician in those years. 
you know, you really were cut from your own cloth. And and if we think of Charlotte Witten in Ottawa earlier, uh, you know, and but in this case as well, you, you had to be a bit larger than life, I think, to survive. Why do you think she did for so many years? Well, I mean... I think you know the, it's, there has to be many many answers to that that kind of uh, question. I think part of it was uh, the the Scarborough uh, rail derailment. Uh, right. I mean, as we yeah. saw with the pandemic recently, when people are worried, uh, and you have your politicians there every day who seem to be you know in control of the files and trying to get you through a, a crisis, uh, they they enjoy a real honeymoon. And I think uh, Hazel McCallion really. Uh, came out of that uh, rail derailment with the, the confidence uh, of the people of Scarborough and really didn't have to run a, a, a campaign for mayor after that in terms of spending money. She was just so well known. Uh, but, you know, couple that with the fact that if you were uh, a mayor of one of those municipalities, as you were growing with more and more suburbs and those development charges coming in, you know, for the longest period, you could keep taxes low and uh, you were the, the, the mayor that people knew as they moved to the municipality. And so throughout the GTA, you had, uh, you know, no one as long lived as uh, Hazel McCallion as mayor, but certainly many mayors who stayed on for decades and decades. All right. Um, I have to ask you your thoughts on what's happening with the city of Toronto. We're talking a lot of municipal politics, obviously, at this time. Um, but uh, with Mayor John Tory announcing on uh, Friday he's resigning, an affair with a, a former staffer and such, we know where that went. Uh, obviously, there's a budget process that they're in the middle of now, which I, I guess comes to a head on, on Wednesday. He's staying to to kind of get that through the door, uh, per se. But, uh, you know, I've heard some uh, pundits say that that could take a while. What are your thoughts on all of this and, and where he finds himself now? Yeah, I mean, it's a real mess because they are right in the middle of this budget cycle. And, uh, you know, it's one that I think many people are anticipating him using his strong mayor powers where he presents a budget and uh, gets it passed with only a third of, of council voting for it. Uh, of course, once he steps down, uh, you know, the, the mayor who steps in is, in the interim, it's unclear whether they have the strong mayor powers in the law, although the, the province has suggested that they don't. Mm-hmm. You know, so suddenly then you go from a, a budgetary discussion where you need a third of the uh, of the council voting to one, you know, more typical uh, kind of democratic decision making where you need the majority uh, vote. And so. Yeah, that budget's all kind of up in the air, and I think that's maybe part of why uh, John Tory wants to to stick around to get it through. Uh, but you know that what's uh, the democratic justification of that strong mayor power that 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 Tory got uh, elected, obviously by the population, but also that he takes responsibility for his choices, and if he's leaving right afterwards, uh, he really won't have to do that. So, in a way, uh, there's a big kind of uh, issue of legitimacy around uh, this budget, and uh, I suspect it's going to be. Uh, a bit messy uh, with people on council who are opposed to certain measures trying to make changes and presumably John Tory making decisions to uh, to veto some of those uh, as they come forward. So, yeah, this could be drawn out for a while. And in the in the interim, you know, Toronto can't move forward in, in choosing a new mayor because it's only when John Tory actually resigns that council can instruct the clerk to prepare a new mayoral election.
Uh, obviously, a lot to digest over the course of the weekend. Now we're hearing a movement of people to get him to stay, that there's chatter of that. Can you see him, A, either dragging this budget process out to you know the point where, oh, is he leaving? Uh, I forgot all about that. Or uh, just rerun, uh, call an election and, and run again. Uh, could you see him continuing on? Well, I mean, uh, yes. I mean, I think it would be on a bit unlikely, but I mean, there's plenty of strange things that happen in politics these years. Mm. So, uh, you know, I mean, there is obviously a part of city council which is very comfortable with the direction that John Tory has taken the city over the past eight years, and probably what Rob Ford was doing uh, in terms of, uh, you know, how he was running the budget for the four years ahead of that. We're worried that we may have a bit of a uh, referendum on the direction of the city and that Torontonians may choose a different direction. And so I'm sure they're really pushing John Tory to, to stay. You know, whether John Tory decides that that's in his own interest is another question, because as soon mm. as he says he'll stay, I, I presume the media will begin digging into the uh, this question uh, a bit more and asking more pointed questions. Uh, you know, just generally in the population, people maybe don't have the same sense of uh, morality as they did in the past and, you know, expecting uh, Tory to, to step down based on this. So, or people maybe don't have a, a strong enough sense about what's inappropriate in a workplace in terms of, you know, people with power dating uh, their, their employees. Um, but, you know, I think it will result in people being much less favorable to John Tory. I think he got reelected less because people loved him, but that, that people thought he was okay. And I think with this, it may push, you know, a number of people to take their unhappiness with things in Toronto, whether it's violence on the TTC or, you know, less TTC service with higher fares or the fact that things aren't as clean as they used to be. And, and, and you know, the, just the many the cost of housing, the many things that are making Torontonians grumpy these days, uh, I think it probably would make uh, John Tory a, a useful scapegoat uh, for people to put on him. You know, the, the mayor who couldn't even uh, get uh, resigning right. Um, mm. I never thought of that. Uh, all right. Can't let you go without asking really quickly about uh, surprise that the provinces and the feds have agreed uh, to a health care deal. Uh, do you think this is more Band-Aids or reform? Uh, well, uh, you know, I'm, I've, I've been watching this for 30 years, so I think it's always Band-Aids. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, there's Band-Aids that open, you know, open spaces for change. I mean, Ontario you know, adopted this idea of the Ontario health teams, got a bit derailed with the pandemic. But, you know, again, in coming to a bilateral uh, agreement with the federal government, uh, uh, probably a part of that's going to go around reforming primary care. And so, you know, there may be some money and some momentum again for working on, on some of the important uh, features of uh, Ontario's existing reform agenda. So, and again, in, in, in the different provinces, there's these ideas for change. And uh, even if money is kind of fungible and like the money, you know, if, if your aunt gives you $10 for Christmas and tells you to like, you know, buy something nice with it, you probably aren't going to go and buy drugs with it. And I think kind of similarly, our, our provincial governments, uh, you know, will take this money and say, yeah, this is for reform and they'll use it for reform uh, or for pushing change. Uh, and so, yeah, I think we'll have some uh, incremental positive effects. Jimmy, what did you do with the birthday money? Uh, Peter Grant with us, professor of political science at McMaster University. Peter, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. And you too. 
If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, we certainly know the conflict that is going on uh, around the world, whether it's the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, the Chinese Communist Party, and their ongoing, um, I guess, grip on the world, including uh, balloons flying overhead. Uh, the first one uh, that we saw coming over Montana, or sorry, through the western uh, western provinces and then through Montana and then shot down off the Carolina coast. Uh, a Chinese spy balloon. The rest we still haven't uh, got caught confirmation on exactly what has happened but obviously a lot of conflict going in the uh, on in the world and uh, this kind of odd but I guess maybe not considering uh, the sanctions that are going on and being um, uh, imposed on Russia's citizenry uh, Russia's ambassador in Ottawa claims Canada is unsafe for his compatriots to visit Canada today is a very dangerous country for Russian citizens uh, I would not recommend it for tourism education or business which I find is fascinating because I was reading something just the other day that uh, China is encouraging all of its students, its kids, to come over and re-enter uh, Canadian universities and continue that program. So where are we moving forward? Is this just more propaganda? Let's bring in Matthew Light, Associate Professor of Criminology, Sociological Studies, uh, Affiliated Faculty Center for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Toronto and is with us now. Matthew, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks. Great to be with you. Thanks for taking the time. We greatly uh, appreciate this. Is this just more propaganda? Is this more uh, uh, just trying to appease those back in Russia that something's actually going on in the world? How do you explain the Russian ambassador's comments? Well, it is peculiar because it's it's um, hard to believe that it will actually have much of an impact on actual travel to Canada from Russia. Um, it's not that easy to get a visa as a Russian citizen, but visa travel is not is not barred. Um, and um, the Russian government could simply have told its citizens that they may not enter Canada, which it's done before when it wanted to. So um, when Russia had a dispute with Turkey some years back, they temporarily barred their citizens from entering Turkey as a way of uh, punishing Turkey for its its um, policies that Russia didn't like. Um, Canada has a more distant relationship with Russia. It's not a major tourism destination for Russian citizens. So my reading is that it's more about um, simply conveying displeasure to the government of Canada, um, perhaps indicating to the people of Russia that um, that Russia is taking action against unfriendly governments, but maybe also trying to indicate to the Canadian business community that Canada is risking um, uh, sort of poisoning the well for them in the future, um, because as in many Western countries, there are people here who do business with Russia, and they um, are concerned about their ability to do that going forward. Uh, what about anybody else? Any other countries, the same sort of claim? Um, Russia has, from time to time, made this claim about other countries. It's not really obvious to me why Canada would be the target right now. Um, mm. I have noticed over the years that Canada does not get a lot of their attention um, it's typically, it seems to be perceived within the Russian government as sort of uh, an extension of the U.S. or broader NATO policies against Russia that they don't approve of. Um, it, it is possible that um, some particular developments here have, have made them um, particularly unhappy. So Canada is um, certainly on the level of diplomacy and its public rhetoric, a very strong supporter of Ukraine um, and uh, has a large Ukrainian community, which has advocated very effectively on behalf of Ukraine, and um, 
there even was an incident in which um, there was a kind of trade-off of of protest outside the uh, outside the Russian embassy um, some time ago. So it's possible that this is part of what is irritating Russia, but it it does not seem like a move that is likely to have any kind of immediate consequences, but maybe is more a signal to the Canadian government that, that Russia is unhappy with us and that we are now on their radar. It just seems odd when I read something earlier this week about how uh, China is encouraging its students to get back uh, on planes and come back over to, to go to university. So they obviously don't feel the same way. Yes, that's a good point. Um, Russia, China seems to be more self-confident about these issues. Um, Russia seems to be deeply needled about um, any implication that its citizens are not welcome. Um, so, for example, um, in in the case of uh, European countries that have, have restricted the access to um, to their countries of, of Russian visa holders um, for tourist purposes, that was perceived as kind of a, a major slap in the face. I, I, I have the impression that China simply is not afraid of this kind of response. China is a bigger, more powerful player and um, can can hold its own. Um, you know, one interpretation of this statement by the Russian government about Canada is that they may actually be, in some sense, trying to kind of proactively anticipate future restrictions on Russians' travel here by the Canadian government or um, sort of making it seem as though muddling the issue in some way by suggesting that um, it's not a good place to visit um, if, if Russians um, might um, come away with the impression that they're not welcome here or that Canada is, is highly pro-Ukrainian um, as a way of kind of um, not making it, uh, making it seem as though Russia is not is sort of taking the initiative rather than being being snubbed, or even come over here and watch the media and find out what's really going on. Uh, yes, certainly that. Um, although that would also be true of other Western countries as mm. well, where, where where Russians visit. Um, there is one further dimension, which is that Russia has lost a lot of people recently um, who have not wanted to be in Russia, whether mm. because they are men who fear conscription or simply they don't approve of the war or are afraid of the consequences of the invasion of Ukraine for, for themselves and their families. Uh, Russia's looking at a huge outflow of um, of its highly skilled uh, workers, including the IT sector. Hmm. And um, it is possible that this move is, is sort of part of a gradual tightening of the screws directed at foreign travel by Russians. It's too early to tell, but it's interesting that um, just last week, um, the Russian parliament began considering a bill that would seize the property of um, people who left Russia for political reasons um, because of their opposition to the war. Mm. So that, if it goes through, would be a very serious move. And in, in a certain sense, this kind of warning about travel to an unfriendly country, as they see it, is inconsistent with that policy of trying to limit um, travel or emigration by Russian citizens. Matthew Light with his Associate Professor of Criminology, Sociological Studies, University of Toronto. Matthew, thanks for the insight. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure. Bye now. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The city of Hamilton continues to spin and life continues to go on as the city uh, continues to grow and reach its full uh, potential. Let's bring in Norm Schlehan, Director, Economic Development, City of Hamilton. See what is going on. And he is with us now. Uh, Norm, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing well, Scott. Hope you're doing well, too. So far, so good. Now, Norm, I, I know this probably has nothing to do with you, but i got to ask you because you're a bigwig at Hamilton anyway. Unfortunately, we heard today Hamilton 100 losing its build for a bid for the Commonwealth Games. That's not going to happen. Uh, any thoughts on that, what it could have been, what it, you know, it might have been, or, uh, you know, we've just got so much on our plate now, on we go. 
you, you know what? It's uh, I, I just I really feel for the, uh, the the Hamilton 100 group that uh, put this whole initiative together. There was a lot of time and effort uh, and, and and countless hours that were put together for a, for a, a great proposal. Just unfortunate that things didn't uh, uh, turn out uh, the way they wanted it to. So. The way it is. Uh, all right, let's. Yeah. Uh, we we certainly have heard of how uh, hard it is and expensive and affordability, inflation, interest rates, what have you. We know how tough it is for the average Hamiltonian uh, to put a roof over the head and just keep going on with life. How does that affect development within the city? How does that affect economic development? Are people pulling back, or is this opportunity? So, so um, Scott, you know, in terms of the. Uh, there's there's a lot of opportunities uh, that that are still still happening here uh, across the city. I mean, we've we've talked on previous segments about the uh, the building permit growth and how you know last year was actually the second best year on on record uh, um, across the city, um, and uh, we still see we're still still, still seeing that strength come uh, into 2023 as well. There's still a, a huge demand to move things forward, um, and we're anticipating that uh, that growth is going to continue throughout the year. Well, obviously, we know what the situation is in regard to housing, but we also know that we need industry, we need business here to help with the tax base and such. Still the interest there, uh, especially when you look at Red Hill and all that area up there, and, and what they're doing at the airport. Yeah, so, I mean, the, the Red Hill is uh, is, is booming. Uh, there's a lot of interest up there uh, in, in terms of uh, growth and development. I'm sure, Scott, if you've ever had a chance to, to take a drive through there, if you ever want to, yeah. just uh, give me a call. and. Uh, but we're uh, we're seeing uh, a lot of interest in the Red Hill, so much so that uh, uh, if things go the way and the economy remains as strong as it is right now, that uh, that Red Hill Park is uh, going to have few sites left for development, and and uh, we're, we're already seeing the what's happening in around the airport uh, with the uh, uh, the great activity in terms of uh, uh, what Panatoni uh, Panatoni's done with the Amazon site and the, their 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 buildings up there. That by the end of this year, they'll probably have about 1.4 million or 1.3 million square feet of a development that includes the Amazon building, but uh, just in the last uh, four years, and that's one developer alone. Uh, and there's other developers in and around the airport that are still seeing great interest. Uh, we, we just need to get the get their plans approved and get them uh, get get them going. Uh, we heard when the Prime Minister was here, obviously more money for the airport, it being a, a cargo hub and such, uh, obviously great value there. Uh, talk about some of the spinoff as a result of that new money that, that will help and, and expand that airport. Well, I, I mean the, uh, the the airport. It, uh, uh, I mean, it just uh, it, it's emerged like not, I shouldn't say emerging, but it, it really came out of the uh, on on the national scene uh, during COVID. I mean, we were the yeah. first we received the first uh, vaccines here in Hamilton, uh, and just the ability. I mean, some of the the infrastructure investments there will allow for larger planes to to land there, uh, actually be able to to make better turns, safer turns, uh, for more efficient cargo. Uh, movements on site at the airport, and, and as well, there's some environmental provisions in there that will actually help uh, from a stormwater perspective as well. So, uh, you know, the airport, our, our partners at Trayport uh, are doing a phenomenal job, uh, um, you know, managing that airport on the city's behalf because, as you know, that is the city does own the airport, and uh, um, so they, uh, yeah, we couldn't be more thrilled. And, and to see the passenger traffic uh, coming back, uh, I stopped talking to Kathy Puckering just a little while ago, and it, it sounds like we're getting back to you know pre-COVID levels in terms of passenger traffic too uh, uh, during certain seasons. So that is that's that's great news. 
Uh, we've often talked to various companies, businesses, uh, what have you, hospitality, and dealing with the city and trying to make that as smooth as possible. Tell us about this employee survey you have to try to get, gauge some feedback from area business. So, Scott, this was born a couple of years ago. I mean, uh, during during the pandemic, uh, where we teamed up with Workforce Planning Hamilton to put out a, a survey, obviously during COVID, to find out you know what are the needs of businesses during COVID, uh, and now this is now evolved into an annual survey uh, that uh, really really helps us because you know there's a, a lot of surveys that go out and people say you know why why another survey, but you know a lot of these surveys are done at the provincial and national levels, and we really need to find some you know homegrown data as to what what's going on and. Um, so, so far we've had over 700, uh, local businesses access, uh, our, our survey, uh, and we're hoping to get, uh, hit the thousand mark by the end of this week when the survey closes. And, uh, you know, what we're going to find out, you know, who's operating as a living wage employer, uh, how inflation is impacting our businesses and, you know, what challenges that local businesses are expecting in the upcoming year. When we find out that information, Scott, we're able to basically model our programs after that and, you know, try to figure out how we can be as, uh, uh most effective to those businesses that, uh, have these challenges. How do we access the survey, Norm? You can complete the survey at www.investinhamilton.ca forward slash employer one. All right, Norm Schlehan with us, Director of Economic Development, City of Hamilton, as it continues to purr along. Norm, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. All right. Thank you, Scott. Hard to believe, but uh, we're already in the anniversary of the uh, Freedom Convoy because it was on for like three weeks. So we're in the center of that right now. Uh, And it was this day, February 14th of last year, that uh, the Prime Minister, uh, Justin Trudeau, invoked the Emergencies Act uh, during the convoy protests uh, to try to get a handle on what was going on. So one year later, here we are. Let's bring in Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch. He's with us now. Duff, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, I am. Hope you are as well. So your thoughts, uh, that many thought that there would be a, a protest or something during the anniversary of all this. It certainly seems that that hasn't materialized, which makes you believe that it really materialized because I guess Ottawa wasn't ready for it. Um, is Ottawa ready for this sort of thing now? Is that why we're not seeing any uh, more f- uh, protests reforming at this point? Or are we just moved on and too busy looking for balloons at this point? Uh, well, definitely, um, uh, in terms of the street in front of Parliament, you you can't drive there right now at all. Yeah. Uh, so you and um, I'm sure the uh, given that the Ottawa Police Service screwed up so badly before um, last year with letting trucks come in and uh, blockade a road and and uh, stay there for days and days and honk their horns all the time that uh, they were trying to make sure along with the OPP that people weren't even able to get Denton downtown Ottawa to do that, let alone in front of the parliament buildings. So uh, I'm, I'm not surprised to see that there isn't a lot of uh, protest and really with any protest, you don't usually see year after year on anniversaries um, of protests, uh, yeah. successful follow-up protests in any area of, or any issue area of concern. Will all these roads remain closed or this area around that precinct that you're talking about? Is that permanent now? Uh, Ottawa is pushing for them to be open, the city council in Ottawa. And uh, I think eventually they will be open. What needs to be clarified is uh, who actually polices them. Because that was a huge problem, mm. yeah. Uh, between uh, the RCMP and and the uh, guards on Parliament Hill and the Ottawa Police Service, 
and they bounced it back and forth and didn't coordinate things um, to allow things go on, to go on for much longer than they should have. And that's not to say blockading a road is a protest technique and it's used, but it can only go on for so long. You're not allowed to violate the rights of others with an ongoing blockade. And um, this one should have been shut down sooner than it was and wasn't because mainly of police services uh, sharing jurisdiction over where the trucks were. So that should be cleared up and then they could open it up again um, and uh, they wouldn't have these problems because anything that happened would get shut down very quickly. You were talking about jurisdiction. And again, as you pointed out, that was an issue way back when. Um, and th- is that still an issue or do you think there's a plan in place? Because many will say, well, if, if jurisdiction is still an issue, then obviously the plan's full of holes. Yeah, uh, jurisdiction is still an issue. It has to be settled, actually, by designating zones uh, in a statute. Because the streets are, are Ottawa Police Service and um, the RCMP and the commissioners share policing right. on the hill. And then you cross that street to the Prime Minister's office, the Langevin block, and to the Senate of Canada. Um, so there's buildings on both sides of Wellington Street, but the street itself is under Ottawa Police Service. And then the OPP handles people coming off the highway right. uh, into downtown Ottawa. So you have to sort that out so that... Um, there, there won't be these coordination problems and, and uh, that one person will be able to act and one person will be able to help be held accountable. As it's tough. Why is it so saying everyone else is to blame? Why does it seem so, uh, so difficult to do that? I mean, why is it, is it a difficult decision to have? Is it nobody sure whose responsibility it is? Because again, as you pointed out, this was a major concern, especially with sharing intelligence information way back when. Um, how, how do you solve the jurisdiction issue? Because as you mentioned, until solved, we could end up in the same place. Yeah. Well, there, the Ottawa, former Ottawa police chief, defended himself and said, oh, it wasn't just me, but there's pretty overwhelming evidence that it was just him yeah, <laughs> and that yeah. he made major decision problems. Um, he was trying to maintain total jurisdiction and control, not ceding it to anybody for some reason, uh, even though he needed the cooperation of the RCMP and OPP. And of course, they were not going to put their officers under the control of the Ottawa police chief. So, um, there was one, one person, hopefully the, the chief now would not be, act like that. That seems to be at least part of the problem. Um, otherwise, in terms of making a change to the law and statutes to give dur- jurisdiction to one of the police forces or, or another, um, you know, that's a problem with government. There's always a thousand things trying to make it down the funnel into the narrow, narrow channel at the end where one bill gets to come out every few months. <laughs> and, and so those thousand things are competing. And um, as long as the road is blocked in front of well, in Parliament, they don't really need to do anything about the jurisdiction because nobody can get there anyway, except on foot. Mm. And, <laughs> Good and, point. And that's a lot easier protest to control than huge trucks that can put on their air brakes and can't be moved uh, even by a tank. Uh, obviously, the report's coming down soon. Um, your thoughts on whether we will get the answers that we're hoping for here? There was a lawyer who argued that the commissioner should just be doing a report on um, whether certain conditions existed, should not do a report on whether the legal line was crossed uh, with an illegal use of the Emergencies Act. I think that was really grasping. The the law says to the commissioner to look at the exercise of power of calling the emergency. uh, And 
the, I still think based on all the evidence that was before the commission, the commissioner should find that the legal requirements in the act were not met with that situation. The government may have thought it was a good idea uh, and it worked, but um, the legal requirements were a national emergency that could not be solved with existing powers. And there was a plan that was about to be executed and finalized that would have solved the problem and removed the trucks. And so based on that, um, the, the prime minister moved too soon. Again, not his fault. Mostly, I think the fault of, from all the evidence, the fault mm. of the former police chief of Ottawa. Mm. But um, still, you, you can't just do it just because someone's not acting properly, especially when a plan was about to be finalized that would have done exactly the same thing that the Emergency Act gave the government the power to do. How do you think Canadians will digest this stuff, considering what you just said? I mean, uh, was it did we meet the legal threshold? Probably not. Um, but it was some may look at it that it was needed to, to clear the streets because of the dysfunction with the police service and such. So uh, how yeah. do you think Canadians are going to react to it? Not much differently than lots of other substantive issues. Um, for some people, <laughs> every issue is partisan. So if a liberal does something, they'll never agree with it. Or if they're a liberal, they'll agree with it. Uh, and uh, others will say, no, well, let's look at the situation. Would I have wanted to be in that situation? I don't really care that the act was violated in this particular circumstance because it was only for nine days. Didn't affect me. Didn't suspend civil liberties across Canada for people. Um, stopped a few protests that were blocking uh, the border and, uh, and Parliament Hill. Stopped the honking and the other abuse of people in downtown Ottawa, including several businesses being having to be shut down. And so, you know, like many substantive issues, people will view them either on partisan lines or they'll look at it and say, well, on the balance, I agree with that or I disagree with it or I'll never agree with it because it was a liberal that did it. Hmm. Duff Conacher with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch on this one year anniversary of uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau declaring, invoking the Emergencies Act. Duff, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You too. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I, I am well. Would it be would it be wrong to say, hey, can we start over and just let that song play for the full minute we're allowed? <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> what a great apparent, song. And, and apparent, very fitting apparent, for Valentine's Day today. Yeah, that's right. You, you've got, that's right. Have you bought enough? you got a whole lot of love there. you got more than enough. There yep. you go. Absolutely. All right. Uh, got to get your take on, uh, announced today, we had PJ Marcani on that uh, the Hamilton 100 uh, bid to uh, host the conference. Commonwealth Games on the anniversary, 100th anniversary of what have been uh, Hamilton hosting the Empire Games. Your thoughts that it, it has fallen through? Uh, yeah, PJ's coming up, uh, as it turns out, on our show. So if anyone missed it, I guess he's doing double duty today. Um, it, it's you start to wonder if maybe it's time for us to look for other pursuits. We lost out in 2010 when the Commonwealth Games bid was was put together and New Delhi got that one. And it turned out that New Delhi's Commonwealth Games was a complete farce. Uh, Hamilton never should have lost that one. And then this one um, never really, I mean, it, I don't want to say it didn't get off the ground, but ultimately it never really got the chance to be bid upon. It just... Scott, I, I, I get that uh, there's a lot of groups that 
are very much excited about this for things, legacy, and other um, facilities and other things that these games. Yeah, could it's a, bring. it's a, an, a historic event and an anniversary of. So yeah, it would it would have been cool. But I just I I really wonder about the public interest in this. Uh, I mm. mean. It, when we're hosting the Grey Cup, you hear people talking about the Grey Cup coming up. When we're t- hosting the RBC Canadian Open, you hear people talking about that. I I can honestly say I did not hear one single person over the last number of years in the public, just an average person, come up and say, hey, you think we're getting the Commonwealth Games? It, there was a, There's a disconnect somewhere that the idea of the games just – it may have value in terms of what it leaves behind – I just don't know that there was an overwhelming sense of public excitement about the concept. And if there, and if that's the case, look, if they're not talking to me, uh, not that I'm the be all and end all, but I'm guessing probably a lot of our politicians are not hearing a lot of buzz and they're thinking, what am I going to spend money on that's going to win me votes? And if no one's talking about this, maybe I can find other things to spend our public money on that's going to get me more chance of getting reelected. All right. Um, I want to get your comments, too. And, and and I'm predicting this, that John Tory, the mayor of Toronto, is not going anywhere. I think this will all go past and there'll be a, a giant uh, yeah. a giant movement to keep him there saying, OK, he's lost the halo, but he was still a good mayor and we don't give a damn what he does in his bedroom, uh, whatever. But here's some very interesting news that has just surfaced. I'm getting this from uh, various media outlets that uh, I guess it's obvious that Doug Ford would have asked him not to resign. But Christia Freeland, the deputy prime minister, has also jumped into that uh, group, saying that he should not resign, along with the Toronto Police Union, I guess that's obvious, and several members of council. Uh, do you think this is going to gain momentum? They say he's going to stay on to get the budget through, but that could be delayed. I-, I could see this getting to the point where, whoa, why was he leaving again, and who cares? All right, so and, this is, and he never leaves. This is a really interesting one, because the politics, like in every Everything else, politics are a big part of this. And the biggest example of this, I think, without question, was the Bill Clinton situation. Yeah. And there were a lot of people, uh, Democrats, liberals, small L liberals, who said, well, what difference, really, what difference does it make that Bill Clinton, you know, did this? It it was his private life. And okay, if that's the position you're going to take, that's the position you're going to take. Now, it was a little awkward because these many of these same people made the argument we heard in this case, well, it's a power imbalance. So that's wrong. Well, the problem yeah. you have, if you take the position that Clinton was fine because it was private life, and if John Tory, if he should stay on and it's okay because it's private life, next time there is someone who you don't like in politics or business who has a little affair with someone who is lower on the power imbalance scale, you probably can't with any good conscience or any credibility say, oh, well, that power imbalance, that person's got to go now. If you're going to make your bed, literally and figuratively, if you're going to make your bed and say it's just private life, that is where you, I think, have to stand then in all of these cases, unless there's evidence of force or sexual assault or something else, which is very different. That's exactly what I was going to bring up. And and it doesn't appear that there's a victim here. Uh, Everybody's gone on and conducted their business. But victims are often made, Scott. We hear all the time, well, the power imbalance. That poor poor woman, now she was, what, 31, I think, in this case, so she was not Mm -hmm. a child. But that poor woman, you know, she, she, it was the power imbalance. She didn't really have a choice or she didn't know. Well, first of all, I think that 
in some ways diminishes the ability. It says that women are not capable of making decisions yeah. in some of these cases. I think that's a dangerous place to go. But as I say, just remember that if this is the position that someone wants to take here, and that's fine, let's be consistent. The next time it's a politician you really don't like, and we'll find out if that position is still stuck with that. Well, it's just private. It's just it's just their private life. Well, I again, don't think I, it will be. I, I think again, it has to do with the, as long as there's no victims. I mean, if it's if it, there doesn't seem to be any reason for doing this other than was the Monica Lewinsky a victim? I would say more so than this woman because we don't even know who she is and she doesn't want to talk to anybody. She's gone. She's moved on with her life. Monica Lewinsky was a different scenario. We knew who she was. Yeah, and, and and you know the argument is did did Monica Lewinsky do that? Now we're going way back in time, but did she do that because hey, look, it was the president of the United States and didn't yeah. really have a choice? That that is really the crux of this whole thing. But let's let's wait and see. As I say, next time it's so. If this had been Donald Trump, I'm not sure that the same people now saying Clinton was okay and Tory is okay would say. He's yeah, but okay. again, again, it's different with Trump because we've got a, a woman who's filing a complaint. No, and I'm, wants I'm, money. Using, I'm, I'm talking. Yeah, about, yeah. I'm talking no, about you. a similar scenario to yeah, this one yeah. right here. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure the same criteria, yeah. the same thing would be followed. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Spectator. Coming up after the six o'clock news. Have a great show. Thanks again, Scott. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Will Weber behind the board here. Hijacking the last word. I just wanted to say, Aaron, my dear, happy Valentine's Day. Thank you so much for the flowers. I love you. Aww, isn't that nice?